Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you. And there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey friends, open your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can open up the YouVersion app, or it's also called the Bible app, and all the notes and scriptures, those have already been uploaded. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you, and I'm so glad that you're part of our family and what God is doing right here through Life Church. Postcards are like the Twitter of letters. Twitter, which originally only allowed you to post with 140 characters, required that you trim the fat to only say what was needed. The company chose its name because by definition, it means a short burst of inconsequential information or chirps from birds. That's where they got their logo from. And that's exactly what postcards are, just little blurbs. Not the whole song, just little chirps. Not the whole story, just little bursts of inconsequential information. Like, Dear Marty, the sunsets on the Pacific Ocean are breathtaking. Wish you were here to see them. Lovingly yours, Kitty Lou. (laughs) Postcards, just little notes. Except these postcards from heaven, these one-chapter books that are small in size but substantial in content, especially the one we're talking about today that has so much content, I had to break it up into more than one message. And in fact, I, I honestly could have broken this up into even more. So I wanna continue talking today about Jude, a postcard for survival. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the fact that before we ever knew you or ever loved you, you loved us. That God, when we weren't chasing after you, you were still chasing after us. God, thank you for your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword that can cut right through whatever it is we're dealing with, whatever it is we're having to endure, and can fix us. And so today I pray that that happens, happens in my life and happens in the lives of my friends watching this today. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So just before the Bible ends, Uh, Right before we read about the end of the world with images of a one-world government and the mark of the beast with horses riding in from the sky and uh, a woman riding in on a dragon, plagues and pestilences, we come across this letter. Just a little note written by the earthly half-brother of Jesus to believers about false teachers. Uh, A note written to the church at large, which may explain why he immediately reveals himself as the brother of James, the same James who wrote the book of James and who was the pastor of the largest Christian church in the world at the time. So so maybe he sent it to his brother's church first, who may have then leveraged their influence in distributing it to the other churches 
around the world. And, and Jude says he, he really wanted to write one letter, but he was compelled to write another. He wanted to write a happy letter talking about the joy of our shared salvation. Maybe he had just read the words of David in the 51st Psalm that said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and felt like maybe the magnificence, the majesty, the miracle of salvation, the joy of salvation had been lost on some who hadn't had to fight the fights or endure the suffering that those like he and his brother James had had to fight or endure to secure their salvation. But as he's writing this letter about the joy of our shared salvation, he is compelled, he's moved by the Holy Spirit to write an entirely different letter altogether. So he writes a letter about the need to contend for our faith, to agonize over chasing truth, how we, we have to defend it at all costs. The Christian community, they'd been infiltrated by these false teachers, this group of spiritual fugitives or outlaws who had slithered in, who'd crept in unnoticed, who'd come with a message of great appeal and inclusion, which as I said last week, they always do that you'll hardly ever meet an offensive false teacher. They're the most gracious, understanding, pleasant kind of people you'll ever meet. They have time to talk. They understand your questions. Again, they can't answer them, but they, they totally understand them. They, they say things like, I hear you, I'm, I'm with you, I'm following you. They're willing to give you space to work through your doubts. They'll seldom tell you what you're doing is wrong because again, after all, we're all on a journey to discover our own truth. And it was so common then, and quite frankly, it still is. And so in verses 5 through 16, Jude comments at length on these false teachers, and he gives four reasons why we're not supposed to follow them. And those reasons, they're, they're interestingly given in these little triplets, 5, 6, and 7, 8, 9, and 10, 11, 12, and 13, and then 14, 15, and 16, in, in verse five, six, and seven, he gives the first reason we shouldn't follow them because they have a certain doom. And he emphasizes that with these really interesting examples. He, he talks about first the children of Israel losing their lives in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. And, and then he uses an example of the fallen angels who sided with Lucifer. And then he uses the example of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who who even though on the outside showed plenty of pleasurable things that attracted people to the cities, had a certain doom. And so he says, like these three examples, there's a certain doom. There's a punishment of eternal fire awaiting these false teachers and ultimately anyone who follows them. Then, then in verses 8, 9, and 10, he gives a second reason. They have blasphemous tongues, he says. They, they knowingly speak against God while presenting it like it's from God. And in speaking against God, they damn themselves and anyone who follows their teachings. So in verse 11, 12, and 13, he says, we don't follow these false teachers because of their spiritual emptiness. They, they have beautiful words with no substance. They're like sugar. They're just empty calories. And so Jude says, woe to them with an exclamation point. Like it's definitive. And then the fourth reason we don't follow them is because of their godless deeds. And 
Y'all, he does not mince words when he describes these people. He says they're grumblers. They find fault. They follow after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people just for the sake of gaining an advantage. And I wonder if while writing those words, Jude was thinking of the words of his older brother Jesus who said, a tree is known by its own fruit. That good fruit can't come from a bad tree and bad fruit can't come from a good tree. And so Jude is saying, we can't follow people who, who abuse others in pursuit of their own lusts. We can't follow people who make their own rules or pursue their own truth. People who subscribe to this idea of continual revelation. People who sneak around in the shadows and cover up each other's discretions for the sake of the church or for the sake of greater good. Or people like these authors Pastor Sonny talked about who take these new age ideas and repackage them as pseudo-Christian messages to a hungry audience of naive new believers who, who want you to think they're trying to build you up when they're really just trying to win you over because misery loves company. So you need to contend for your faith. You, you need to agonize over chasing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help you God. Because in following these false teachers, you share in their destruction. And so it makes me wonder, how, how do we handle that? Well, in verses 17 through 23, Jude actually gives us four steps to keeping your faith. Let me tell them to you and then I'll come back and I'll highlight them. We remember God's word, we remain in God's love, we release mercy on some, and we rescue others, okay? So let's go back and look at those. First, we remember God's word. He said, but you, beloved, ought to remember. Remember what? The words that were spoken by the apostles about Jesus. You wanna know how to handle times like these when you need an anchor? Times like these when you need something to hold on to, look to the scriptures. Guys, it's all in there. We're not experiencing anything new. King Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Jude says, in the last time, there'll be mockers following after their own godly lusts. These are the people who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded. They're void of the spirit. He's saying there's no question about it. These people, they're not from God. And, and he says nothing about their external. Like externally, like Sodom and Gomorrah, they're appealing. They have everything that would make you wanna attach yourself to them. They have the skinny jeans and the V-neck, the right hair and cool glasses, tattoos and Buddha beads. But deep down inside, which incidentally is what scripture indicates as the part that God looks at. Deep down on the inside, the fact is, if they're speaking contrary to the scriptures, they're speaking against God. They're enemies to his mission and his message. Their message sounds good. I mean, good enough to get them in the coveted Oprah book club, but you can never do better than the scriptures. I mean, I mean, it may not be as scintillating. It may not sound as alluring or attractive. It, it may not have a, have a relevant ring to it if you only read it in the two-dimensional approach, but the things that'll keep you strong the things that'll keep you grounded, anchored in difficult times are the things that are written in the word of God. It tells you itself that it'll never return void. So remember, remember God's word. It's the first step. The second, remain in God's love. 
And he even spells out how to do it. He gives three participles, build yourself up, pray in the Holy Spirit, and wait anxiously for the mercy of Jesus. So how do I do that? How do I remain in God's love? I build myself up in my faith, which by the way, I have to do for me and you have to do for you. No one can do that for you. No one can make penance for you. No one can pray you in after the fact. You are responsible for your repentance. The great apostle Paul said you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, and just for clarity's sake, if your only building up takes place in a church service, you're not really being built up. You're just being encouraged or entertained. You have to build yourself up in your faith. Read your Bible, worship, meditate on God. And Jude says, pray in the spirit, which, which doesn't just mean praying in tongues. It means sometimes silently sitting in God's presence without an agenda or a wish list and asking him what you should pray for or about. And once you've done that, you wait anxiously for the mercy of Jesus. There should be an expectation. There should be a sense of destiny in your prayers, a belief that they're gonna happen, that, that they're going past the ceiling. It, it's the second step, remain in God's love. Here's the third, release mercy on some. He says, have mercy on some who are doubting. On some, on some, hmm. That's interesting. It's an interesting way to word that. But the thought here actually leans toward the word pity. Now, I have to confess, in my pilgrimage or in my journey toward Jesus, I've gone through seasons of judgment, times where I leaned toward being frustrated with people. Like you ever commit to make changes in your life and then suddenly you look at people condemningly who aren't making those same changes, people who are doing the very things you were doing like five minutes ago. <laughs> I do that every time I go on a diet. <laughs> like, look at that pig in that car shoveling fries into their mouth. But meanwhile, I still have fry grease under my nails. I still have salt in my cuticles. I get so judgmental. And it's not just physically. Like when I was a young believer, I did that spiritually like all the time. I, I had this tendency to be judgmental, even legalistic at times. Uh, but as I've aged, I've become more balanced. Not more tolerant, just more balanced. I've realized that people are at different mile markers in their journey. A couple weeks ago, Sunny and I were on the West Coast and, and we went uh, on a hike. There was a, a mountain, I guess, mountain-ish, like mountain light. It was a mountain to me. There's a molehill to somebody who's in shape. And so uh, we woke up and Pastor Sonny said, you know what I think we should do today? I think that we should spend time together. I said, yes. She said, let's go on a hike. I went, hmm, I had already committed that I was gonna spend the time with her. I would have preferred to have sat somewhere, but so I did it. We put on the gear, we got the snacks, we carried a backpack, there were bottles of water in it and granola bars and beef jerky. I mean, it was like we were going on a hike across the country, but we went from sea level to like 3,000 feet. And oh, guys, it was terrible. It was the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And I've done time. I mean, it was terrible. We got like halfway up and it, listen, it took hours for us 
to make this walk. And the reason, if I'm being frank, that it took hours is because I had to stop like every 10 minutes to catch my breath. I didn't realize. I mean, I knew that I was out of shape, but I didn't know that I was on death's door before we took that walk. And about halfway up, the people walking up, it began to become more sparse. There were less people going up and a lot more people coming down. I don't know if we just got there too late, but about halfway up, people just started encouraging me, not Pastor Sonny. They just would look at me and say, hey, good job, man. It's, I, I don't know if, if it was that they remembered their journey up or if they just could see me struggling in mind. But they would say things like, hey, it's worth it, man. Keep going. You're going to be so happy when you get to the top. And like, you know, 70-year-old women who are like, it's great. And I thought, if that lady can make it, just now my male pride kicked in, because if that grandma could make it, then I'm going to make it. And so three hours later, uh, we got to the top. I don't think it was worth it, actually. It was, it was okay. Like I've seen, I, I've seen that from buildings before, right? Like I've, I've been, I've, I've been on the peak in Hong Kong and you can see the whole city and they have a train that goes up to that. And so, you know, whatever. But Sonny, was happy, but what I took out of that was this idea that the people could see me struggling in my hike. They could see me struggling at something that they had already done and they had compassion on me and encouraged me. And as I read this, I was caught up with the command to have mercy on some who are doubting. And it's interesting what it will do in you when you have mercy rather than malice. Sometimes you can be so so passionate in your contending for your faith that you actually close the door to the mind of some believers, which is why it says some. Some people like to have someone up in their face, but others, they need a velvet glove. So release mercy on those velvet glove people. It's the third step. Fourth, and this one's so beautiful to me, he says, rescue others. He actually says, snatch them out of the fire, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Uh, Isaiah and I, a few weeks ago, same trip, Isaiah and I were in downtown Seattle and uh, we're driving down the street and, uh, and all of these fire trucks and police cars just started driving by us. And so, you know, my instant reaction when that happens is I'm getting behind one because I want to see what's going on. And so we got like two blocks down the road and it was crazy, y'all. There was a dude on fire, like in, in flames. And, and there was like a dozen fire trucks and police cars. And one of the dudes like tackled him to the ground and put out the fire with the like silver tinfoil blanket. And, and then once they took the blanket off, they stripped the dude down to his drawers. And Isaiah, Isaiah goes, well, that's embarrassing. And I go, bro, what's embarrassing? He said, bruh, they stripped him down to his drawers in the middle of the street. <laughs> I go, a teenager can think. So I said, I don't know, man. I'm pretty sure he didn't mind. He'd probably rather be embarrassed than have them keep him in those smoldering clothes. I wonder how many of us are letting people stay in the remnants of the fire because we're worried about their feelings. Guys, Jude says, save them, rescue them. He's saying, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the stuff that's dragged them under, but love the soul of the person that's being pulled down. 
Because when you do that, he says, you'll be able to stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. That's our job as Jesus people, to be vigilant, to be defenders of truth for ourselves and for those who can't do it for themselves. We're called to remember God's word, to remain in his love, to release mercy on some and to rescue others. And this church is so good at it. You are so good at it. But unfortunately, not all churches are, which makes it extra important that we contend for our faith, that we agonize over chasing truth. And it's not easy. It's so hard, especially in this culture of compliance. So I thought with that in mind, let me end not just this message, but this whole series with a parable goes like this. On a dangerous sea coast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. It's just a hut with one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought for themselves, they'd go out day and night tirelessly searching for those lost or those in danger. Many lives were saved by this small band of people who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the station. Over time, its effectiveness, it became known. The place became famous. Some of those who'd been saved, as well as others along the coast, they wanted to be associated with the station. They were willing to give their time, their money, and their energy to help advance its life-saving mission. New boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station that was once obscure, crude, and virtually insignificant began to grow. But some of its members, they were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive, so poorly furnished and equipped. They, they felt that a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with beautiful new furniture. Rough handmade equipment was thrown away and new high-tech systems were installed. The hut, of course, it had to be torn down to make room for all the new equipment and all the beautiful furniture. And so once the new building was completed, the life-saving station, it became a popular gathering place. Its objectives began to shift. It was now used as sort of a, a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings. Saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the wounded, and calming the disturbed, they, they rarely occurred by now. Fewer and fewer members were interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do the dirty work. The original goal of the station, it, it wasn't forgotten though, so the life-saving motif lived on in the clubhouse's decorations. In fact, they even put the original lifeboat on display and they, they highlighted it with soft, indirect lighting that managed to somehow hide the layer of dust that had gathered due to inactivity. About this time, a large ship, it was wrecked off the coast and the professional crews, they brought in boatloads of cold, wet, sick, half-drowned, dirty people, the beautiful new club. Suddenly, it became messy cluttered with needy people. A special committee, they immediately decided that a new shower house should be built outside, away from the club, so victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings shared, which resulted in division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the life-saving activities and, and all involvement with shipwreck victims. They said it's too unpleasant. It negatively affects the social aspect of the club. It's opening the door to people who aren't our kind. As you'd expect though, some still interested in saving lives, they spoke up. It was their primary objective. Their only reason for existence was helping people in need. They were promptly voted down. They were told if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. But as years passed, the new station experienced the same change as the other had. 
it evolved into another club. So another life-saving station was started. But history, it continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive impressive clubs, but not one life-saving station. Oh, shipwrecks still happen in those waters. But most of the victims, they're lost to the waves. Very few are ever saved. That's why this series shifted from a happy, feel-good intention to a series about truth, as uncomfortable as that truth may be. An erosion has happened, and there needs to be a salvation station that'll save the lost and save the saved, that'll save the lost from their sins, but save the saved from themselves. Because as Jude so passionately reveals, far too many believers have forgotten what the mission of Jesus even is to seek and save the lost. And so I wonder, which do you need to be saved from? Your sins or yourself? And I tell you, whichever it is, salvation is here. Would you close your eyes? Uh, salvation is a rescuing. It's, it's saving someone. It's hard to put it into words when you've known it for a long time and sometimes it just becomes common or becomes white noise. But some of you watching this, you're drowning. Some of you watching this, you have loved ones who are drowning. And the only lifeline that will rescue us is Jesus. And so today, I wanna give you the opportunity to be saved, to be rescued, to be pulled out of the waters that are dragging you down. And salvation, it, it's a simple process. It's not easy, but it's, it's simple. The Bible says that you really just have to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe that you're a sinner, but he can save you, you'll be rescued. And so today I want to give you the opportunity to do that. And, and this is how we'll do it. I'm going to say a few lines in a prayer, and if you'll repeat them after me and mean them in your heart, the Bible says, that's it, you're saved. You're on the pathway to rescue. So will you say these with me? Will you say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me, come into my life, rescue me, save me, pull me out of the depths. Be my Lord, and be my savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, congratulations. You've just been rescued and you may feel waterlogged and you, you may feel like you've just been through the ringer, but I got good news. I promise you, you're surrounded by people who've been through the same thing that you're going through and wanna help you become more like Jesus. And so, would you do us a favor and would you reach out to us and let us become a part of your Jesus journey? But maybe you're saved. Maybe you're already rescued, you're in the boat. You say, you know what, Sean, I'm like those people in that club. And maybe you've forgotten the mission to seek and save the lost. If that's you, can I pray for you, Jesus, for my friends who are watching this, who may have forgotten why it is we exist. Relight the wick, God. Renew our passion. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Help us seek and save the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? 
You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.